welcome to everyone who's here, uh, whether you're a follower of Jesus, whether you're a skeptic about Jesus, uh, or whether you're just a seeker of Jesus. Everyone is, that's the beauty of, of coming together in church, is not everybody has to be in the exact same place theologically. You can be wherever you are, and it's okay. I do want to tell you one thing. This church, unbeknownst to probably most of you, has played a very, very significant role in my life, in the life of my wife and our family, and two church plants. And if it wasn't for this church, I probably wouldn't even be here today. And I mean that in every way that I can mean it. And I promise to maybe unpack that a little bit more for you as the sermon goes on. Just a couple of things. Uh, you know, one of the things I've learned uh, being in non-church-based ministry is it's always good to take gifts where you go. Uh, and my wife and I just became grandparents, so, you know, I know that, like, gifts and giving things out, you know, kind of part of the expectation. So there are some books written by our executive director, Chuck Garriott, uh, on the back, as well as prayer cards if you're wondering, you know, how can I be praying for this ministry uh, that is not just here in Washington, D.C., but also exists in seven states right now around the country, in state capitals, and also about a half a dozen international capitals. So if you're wondering specifically how you can be praying for what we're doing here in Washington, D.C., uh, we would love to have you uh, join us in prayer. Uh, with that said, let's rise for uh, the scripture reading. Do you normally rise for scripture? If you don't, well, you know what? I'm the new guy, and you can just blame me later. Uh, hear, hear the word of the Lord uh, from Acts chapter 28. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here have reported or spoken evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. 
For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for preserving this word, which is encouraging to us, not just to read about how you sustained Paul in the midst of a very difficult time, but about how you preserved this word to encourage us in our difficult time. Father, I do thank you for the fact that you give us a hope that is able to help us endure through all manner of circumstances. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes, ears, hearts, and minds of all who are here, that they might come to fully understand the wonderful and abundant life that you have for them. In Christ Jesus, amen. Uh, you may be seated. Uh, again, it's, it's, it's great to be here this morning. It's great to see so many faces below the nose. That is just, I had, you know, so most of us have smartphones. My smartphone is happy to see the rest of my face because, you know, I thought, oh, I'm going to do this great thing. I'm going to engage my phone to do my face, and it keeps telling me, I'm sorry, I don't know what that black thing is, and you're just, you have to still enter your keypad. So we're, we're about to get back to the new, the new normal. Uh, so a few things about ministry to state. Here's the thing, I'm an interactive pastor, so at times I may call on you, uh, not to finish the sermon, but I may ask you to interact. Uh, raise your hand if you have never heard of Ministry to State. One, okay, that's good, that's good. And it's okay, maybe you're feeling, oh, it's a lot of pressure, maybe I'm supposed to know about it. Here's the thing, I found out about Ministry to State exactly one week before I applied for the job as associate director. I planted two churches with, with MNA, and at no time did I understand that we had a ministry in Washington, D.C., let alone it was a potential vocational career for me. So if you are in this boat this morning where you're like, I don't even know what ministry to state is or what it does, you know what? Maybe someday soon you can be the associate director because knowing about something is not a prerequisite for, you know, really anything. Uh, we have been around for 19 years. Uh, we started when our executive director, Chuck Garrett, who I understand's brother attends worship here pretty regularly, uh, decided to move from his cushy gig in Oklahoma City to ministry in Washington, D.C. that was largely kind of spurred on by the fact that he had been leading a Bible study in the state capital in Oklahoma City and realized what a great need there was for kind of a focused ministry to people serving in government. It was made even more clear to him after two guys thought that a really great way to get the attention of those serving in government would be to fill a rider van with explosives and park it in front of the Murrow Federal Building and blow the front half of the building off. 
and kill a lot of people because the government wasn't listening. And what are they supposed to do? And it was their response to that and his ability, Chuck's ability to be in that place that led him to believe that the Lord was actually calling him to Washington, D.C. and to start ministry to state, ministering to people in Washington and in state capitals and in international capitals. Because just like RUF, people serving in government have a very unique context. Maybe some of you here are serving in government. If you are, we would, we would love to connect with you in, in whichever way uh, you would enjoy. So for 19 years, we have been doing this in three kind of venues, state capitals, international capitals, and, and uh, Washington, D.C., and we really have five things that we focus on. One, outreach. We want to see people come to Christ. Two, discipleship. We want to see people grow deeper and deeper and deeper in their faith. Three, vocational application. We want people to understand that it's not just about growing deep as a disciple, it's about knowing how to live in the world, how to take what they know about the Bible and apply it to their workplace, to their interactions with those around them. We also work very hard at developing healthy relationships with the church, with people in government, and people in government with the church. And very frequently, if you'll talk to some of the folks that are just starting out in government, one of the things you'll hear from them, a staff assistant or an intern, their job is to basically do whatever they're asked to do. Mainly, make coffee, answer the phone. And when they answer the phone, the most frequent phone call that they get where the person identifies themselves as a Christian goes this way. I just wanted you to know that I'm a Christian, and I just wanted you to know that God is opposing you, that he is against you, that you are the scourge of the earth, that you are going to hell, and that everything you're doing is damaging this country. Have a nice day. And on January 6th, we were getting text messages. I particularly was getting text messages from an intern who it was her second day on the hill. She was super excited to have this internship. She was so happy to finally be on the Hill, and her congressman had to go and vote to, uh, to certify the election. And afterwards, they were going to have this nice little party back in the office, and then all of their phones started going off. And the message said, lock yourselves in your office, barricade yourselves, and do not let anybody in until Capitol Hill police instruct you that it's safe. And then, give us your congressman. We know he's in there. We want him. He has a trial. That's your second day at work. You're terrified. So ministry to state, what we do not do is we never walk into anybody's office and tell them how to vote, you know, that, oh, by the way, uh, um, Roy Taylor, who used to be our seated clerk, just called me and told me that he doesn't like some of the language in H.R. 4273, and could you please change it a little bit? We never have that conversation with anybody. We are there to pastorally care for them 
and to pray with them, which is the fifth way in which we seek to care for people. And so, as you know, we have a new president. Uh, For most intents and purposes, we somewhat peacefully transitioned power six months ago. And prior to that, um, I was, I'm one of six staff in Washington, D.C. Prior to that, I was leading Bible studies at three different uh, executive branch offices um, with very high-level appointed officials in them. And you know, if you know anything about the government, you know that this is how the, way, how the executive branch works. The president takes office, the president appoints some people to be cabinet secretaries, and then those people pick their staff, and those are called appointees. And the job of the appointee is to give direction to the careers, right? Who they just are there, administration after administration after administration, they're there doing, doing the work every single day. And so, of course, the way that any new administration does is they say, hey, you know what? There's a lot of things in every single agency, and they're all wrong. They're all wrong. They all need to be fixed. Your job is to fix everything and make it the right way. And so they do. They spend that entire administration fixing everything and making it the right way. And most of the time, these appointees tell the careers, it's your job to fix this mess. Imagine, if you will, children, or not children, imagine making a sandcastle on the beach. And one of your parents comes by and says, I would like the sandcastle to look this way. I would like it to look like Neuschwanstein Castle. And so the child sets about building it. And when it's almost complete, somebody else walks by and says, what is that? That is the ugliest excuse for a sandcastle that I have literally ever seen. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to build a different sandcastle, but I need you to build it on top of the one you've already started. You're like, well, but wait a second, that's going to like, there's going to be no good foundation. It's going to be, I don't care, just get going on it. And so you begin to build that one. And sometime later, as you're just about finished, somebody comes by and says, what is that that you're building? It's a horrible excuse for a sandcastle. Build the other one back again, but some changes. This is what it's like in a cabinet agency. Imagine knowing that after your president has lost the election, that everything you've worked for the next people who come in are going to try to undo it. And imagine that you're a career person and you've been building new sandcastles upon sandcastles for year after year after year. And you think to yourself, what is the point? I mean, maybe some of you are frustrated with Washington. Maybe you're frustrated with Maryland politics. You're like, why can't we have nice things? Why can't anything actually happen? And, you know, a lot of the folks on the Hill, that's where they are. It's frustration. They feel futility. They feel anxiety. They feel apathy. And this is where Ministry to State does a lot of our work in trying to care for people who are experiencing these situations. 
Jean-Paul Sartre said, he's a famous philosopher, he said, hell begins where hope ends. And I think he's right. And so imagine if all you see is seemingly hopeless, that no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you work, it just doesn't seem to matter. Nothing seems to get better. In fact, you seem to be losing ground. How can we possibly sustain that when nothing seems to be working? This is the good news that we have this morning, is that there is hope in the midst of situations like this. So the first thing I want you to know is that Scripture invites us to make an assessment of our situation, right? And it doesn't sugarcoat it. Look at the passage. After three days, Paul called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I'd done nothing against the people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they examined me, they wanted to send me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring uh, a case against my own nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil against you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it's spoken against. So let's take an assessment of what Paul's situation is. He's in jail. No one seems to like him. The Jews are beyond frustrated with him. The Roman courts are beyond frustrated with him. He's eaten up docket time for whatever reason. And he's, as far as he knows, like, I haven't even done anything. And nobody likes me. And I'm in prison. And he says here, after three days, here's the thing. He's been in prison for over two years. He was arrested. This is Acts 28. He was arrested all the way back in Acts 21 in the temple, and it's been court case after court case after court case. He's been working his way through the system. Two years. No matter who he talks to, no matter what he says, there he is. And here's the thing that complicates it. He has no street cred whatsoever. What it says in verse 21 is, we've received no letters from Judea about you. We don't care. We don't know anything about you. You have, you have no street cred here whatsoever. The only thing that we know is that this group that you claim to represent, we have heard of them. And everyone speaks bad about it. That's where he is. His circumstances are pretty bad. It's not like they're, oh, hey, do you know who we're holding? We're holding Paul. Have you seen? Whoa, this guy's amazing. He's wonderful. What's he doing in jail? And he's part of this wonderful group that just wants the best for everybody. No one is saying that. That's his situation. He has been carried along 
People are opposed to him, and it's been happening for a very, very long time. So as Christians, we're beginning to feel, I think, a lot more of kind of what Paul is experiencing here, right? It used to be that we could walk over to our brand new neighbor's house and say, hi, my name's Michael, welcome to the neighborhood, my wife and I are Christians. And here's what we think they hear. Well, you're a wonderful person, and you are faithful and true, you're like a Boy Scout, trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. If I'm ever in need, I will come to you. That is not what they hear. The Barna group, who does studies on this, have studied and they have asked, what did you actually hear? And non-Christians said, oh yeah, I did hear my neighbor say he was a Christian. And that means he's hypocritical, he's judgmental, he's, he's anti-gay, he's overly political, he's some old cultural whatever, and the only reason he exists in his life is to get me to convert. So as you're walking back thinking, oh, that went pretty well, (laughs) they're walking back going, hey, we're never contacting those people ever. The only thing I've ever heard about them is bad, bad, bad. This is where we find ourselves today for the most part. So that's an honest assessment of our circumstances. What do we do? Well, fortunately, Scripture invites us to have a response to our circumstances. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved and disagreeing among themselves They departed after Paul had made one statement. So Paul's circumstances are bad, but he's doing the right thing, right? He's like, you know, here I am in jail. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm just going to keep proclaiming the gospel. I'm going to keep preaching. I'm just going to keep reasoning with them however I can. Because he's Paul. Here's what it says about Paul in 2 Corinthians. If If anyone dares to boast of, I'm speaking like a fool, I also dare to boast. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Paul's like, hey, guess what? Did you study with Gamaliel? I did, right? Were you a high-ranking Pharisee? I was. I had the best education ever. I am so connected and so well-trained, you would not believe, you could not possibly get to my level. That's what, that's what Paul has. And this is where he is. Despite his credentials, despite his training, despite his pedigree, despite him saying the right thing the right way at the right time, people are not listening to him. People are leaving. People are saying, what you just said is irrelevant at best, extreme at worst, and I am not interested. And this this is our reality, that despite our best efforts, Despite our best efforts, 
sometimes our situation does not change. In fact, sometimes, despite our best effort, our situation gets worse. This is what's been going on for Paul. He's doing everything the right way. He's got all the right words. He has the best words. Nobody has words better than Paul. He's got the best words. People are always talking. Paul, you have the best words. And yet he's here in this place. And here's the thing. So truth number one, despite your efforts, sometimes situations don't change and people won't listen. Truth number two, sustainability of our efforts is directly related to our hope. And if our hope is in the wrong place, sustaining our efforts will be nearly impossible. And so frequently, where our hope is, is based almost entirely on our circumstances, on changing our circumstances. I hope I can change this. I hope I can change that. That's where our hope is. And when it doesn't change, hopelessness, apathy, frustration, futility, anxiety. And that is a horrible place to live if you're on the hill or if you're in a marriage or if you're a child or if you're a parent. Maybe you've been trying for 5, 10, 15, 30 years to change your spouse. No matter what you do, it doesn't matter. It just seems to get worse. Maybe you've been trying to, to correct, course, correct the course for your child who's wandered off. No matter how hard you work, no matter what book you buy, no matter what you try to implement, it doesn't work. Kids, listen up. This is for you. Perhaps you've got a friend that you're trying to fix things with. Or, kids, listen, now only you hear this. Your parents don't hear this. Perhaps you are really struggling with your parents. Perhaps your parents are driving you absolutely crazy. Perhaps you wish that they didn't act the way that they did when they came home from work. And you try, you do everything you can, and they don't seem to change. And it seems hopeless. Maybe you're trying to grow a church, and no matter what you do, no matter what font you use in your advertising, or how much social media posts you make, or what flyers you hand out, it just doesn't seem to work. No one comes. And maybe your, your church is filled with conflict, and no matter what you do to try to resolve it, it doesn't seem to go away. And this is where you come in. This is where Wallace Presbyterian plays an integral role in my life and ministry. I went to seminary in 2004. I graduated in 2007. And I knew really kind of a few things. I'm not planting a church. 
I'm not going back to my hometown of Iowa, let alone Iowa City where I was born. And the Lord was like, yeah, it's so funny that you didn't think those things. I don't care what you think. I think you're going to plant a church and you're going to go to your hometown of Iowa City. And so I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's good because you know what? No one knows Iowa City better than me. I was born there, raised there. I love Iowa City. I know Iowa City. No one knows Iowa City better than me. Nobody is going to know how to plant the most amazing, awesome, ancient, medieval corporate liturgy church reaching the poor and the homeless and the academics. It's going to be awesome. People are going to write books about how amazing this is. Yeah, at our high point, I think we had 105 people. And it was super stressful. If you ever want to plant a church, try to time it so that two things are happening. There's a natural disaster, like a major flood, and an economic disaster so that nobody has money to fund it. Perfect. It sets the stage for it. I worked so hard. I tried everything to make that church grow. And a man who had become one of my first elders, who I know as my personal Yoda, but you know as Fred Skiff, came to me and he said, Brother, I have never seen anybody work as hard as you. And it is hard. You are suffering immensely. You seem to have a lot of theology. I don't see you applying any of it to yourself. How about you start there? How about you embrace the gospel first and worry about everything else later? What? <laughs> You're saying I'm planting a church and like don't know what the gospel is? Yes, that's what I'm saying think you know what it is, I don't think you've applied it to yourself. Do you think it's about working hard and getting results? Do you think it's about not suffering? Maybe you should try a different way. Maybe you try the gospel way. And, and this is where ministry to state, this is what we're trying to do on the hill, where people are working really, really hard. And sometimes things just don't ever change. And, and, and Paul sees this. He sees this bigger picture because Scripture offers a proper assessment of our circumstance. So Scripture invites us to make an observation about our circumstances, but what Scripture really does is it provides us the proper perspective of about what's actually happening. And Paul says, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and their ears can barely hear and their eyes are closed lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Here's what Paul's doing. He's reaching back to the prophet Isaiah whose job it was to go to Judea and, tell, and say, hey, you need to repent. You're doing a whole bunch of things wrong. Stop right now. Or else you're going to go into exile. How'd that work out? The people were like, huh, I see your mouth moving. I see you saying words. <laughs> I don't really care. And they went into exile. And Paul uses this. 
They've come to him to hear, and Paul says, you let me tell you how this ends. You're going to hear me, but you're not going to listen. You're going to see me, but you're not going to understand what's really happening. You are going to reject me. That's what's going to happen. The reason I know this is what's been happening for millennia. I'm not expecting to have amazing results right here. He has the proper perspective. He understands that this is God's plan for Saul. When Saul is converted, God says, I am going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And he did. Here's a little bit of what Paul says after he talks about how amazing he is. He says, uh, yeah, so about that pastoral ministry thing, church planting, yeah, if you can find anything else to do other than plant a church, I highly recommend it. Uh, Here's what he says. Uh, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked for a night and a day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger from the city, in danger from wilderness, in danger from the sea, in danger from... False brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all of that, there was the daily pressure on me and the anxiety for the churches. This is a man called by God, with unbelievable pedigree, who knew exactly what to say and when to say it, and that's how it worked out for him. And how do you get back up after you've been thrown out of town for the umpteenth time with rocks thrown at you and say, oh, what town's next? Where are we going? How do you do that over and over and over and over again? Because he has hope that is not based on his circumstances or results. And he is quoting a verse that Jesus quoted in John 12, Mark 4, and Matthew 13, when Jesus says, you're going to hear, but you're not going to listen. You're going to see, but you're not going to perceive. Your eyes are blind. You're not going to get it. And what happened to Jesus, who said everything perfectly at the exact right time in the exact right way? Here's what happened. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This was Paul's hope. Paul's hope was not the conversion of various churches and successful ministries. I mean, if it was for Corinth alone, who he probably wrote four letters to. We have two, because Paul, I mean, they were, he was like, hey, that third letter, yeah, can you destroy that? I'm a little off my rocker on that thing. Corinth was a disaster as a church plant. This was hard work, but Paul understands, look, it's not about how successful the church is. It's about doing what God has called him to do where God has called him to do it. And so this morning, if you find yourself in an unwanted place, in an unwanted situation that seems to be going on forever, 
despite your best efforts to change it, I want you to know one thing. The hope that you have is not in that circumstance changing. The hope that you have is that Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose again from the dead to unburden you from the weight of feeling like it was your responsibility to change things and to make things better. It says, he's the person who does that. It is not you. This is the hope that Paul has. Maybe you are being carried along, but you are always being carried along by Yahweh, by your loving Father, who is working out your redemption despite the suffering that you might feel. And here's the final beautiful part of this. Scripture offers a proper response to our circumstances, and that is to give us a gospel hope. It says he lived there for two whole more years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Gospel hope is how we move from futility and frustration and apathy and anxiety almost all the time. I want to make this point. Gospel hope is necessary, but not always sufficient for us to, you know, move beyond these things. And this is part two of my story. You see, no matter what Fred Skiff said, I mean, I, I got it, I, I understood it, but I was stressed out all the time. All the time. I was so stressed out. I could keep it together in private situations and in church situations, but I would come home and I would be completely frazzled. And I just, no matter what I did, I seemed to not be able to control myself. It's very, very difficult for me. And so to relieve the stress, I would get on my bike and I would go, go for bike rides. And during those bike rides, I would frequently think about driving my bicycle into oncoming traffic. Because I was so stressed out, I did not want to go through another day. Because it didn't seem like it was ever going to change. I became convinced that I was dying of like four or five different things. I began to feel aches and pains in my body. And one of my goals was to, to move to, to Washington, get my family situated so that I could die. And they would have somewhere nice to live. And I went to a, a retreat, a Potomac Presbytery retreat, and Diane Langberg came. And some of you know who she is. She's a very famous clinical psychologist, psychiatrist. She's a wonderful PCA woman, beautiful Christian. And during this, she talked about something called complex trauma. Complex trauma that happens in your childhood that actually rewires your brain. So that you just can't stop being stressed out and overfunctioning. And about a month after hearing that message, I went to the doctor. And I said, I kind of think I'm dying of a whole bunch of stuff. And if that stuff doesn't kill me, I kind of feel like maybe I'd do it myself. And he said, it sounds like you have an anxiety disorder. And so I take 75 milligrams of Zoloft every day. It is amazing. 
I just completed a year of very intense therapy with two trained clinical psychologists, and so I want to tell you this morning that do not leave here thinking that what I just said was if you just believe the Bible, everything's going to be fine mentally up here. That's not always the case. Sometimes your brain gets in your own way, and there, are, there is clinical help that is needed, and it is available. But this gospel hope is the hope that moves us beyond futility and frustration and apathy and anxiety. It is what fuels, instead of being frustrated and angry, it's what makes Paul be able to welcome people. Two more years of this, he's welcoming people. He's saying, I'm glad you're here. I'm proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. I'm telling you what a full and abundant life looks like and how you can be free from the burdens of trying to do everything yourself. And he's doing it boldly and without hindrance. He's had an opportunity to talk to religious leaders, blue-collar folks, jailers, people in Caesarea, people all over the ancient Near East. He's talked to King Herod and Bernice. He's talked to governors Felix and Festus. He's had audiences he couldn't have dreamed of. But it was through his suffering and God's plan to move him through all of this stuff. He's like, hey, yeah, yeah, your, your things is Saul, your credentials is Saul. I don't care about those. But you are going to Rome. And you are going to talk to Caesar. But it ain't going to be because of your credentials that get you there. It's going to be because I get you there the way I want you there. And Paul says, okay, that's fine. This is what we're trying to do at Ministry to State, equip people serving in government to have a gospel hope that can move them through this life so that when they have opportunities, they can proclaim the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. In your bulletins, you will see that this message was entitled, Futility and Flumo Madumo. I got a message from... Uh, uh, David Miner, he's like, I have no idea what Flumo Madumo is, but I will dutifully put it in the bulletin for you, and, and let me just tell you, I'm going to tell you right now what Flumo Madumo is. Uh, another elder friend of mine once told me this story about a time when his uh, wife and his daughter had left to go shopping for the day, and on the way home, they were going to go grocery shopping and bring home something for dinner. And so he's got the grandkids, and about, you know, 25 minutes before he's expecting dinner to arrive, they call and say, well, we got a little sidetracked shopping. Not going to be home in time. Whip something up for the kids. <laughs> kids are very hungry. You know how young kids are when they get hungry. It's kind of a battle. He opens up the refrigerator, and guess what's in there? That's why they went grocery shopping. <laughs> and the kids say, Grandpa, what are we having for dinner? And he opens it again, and he takes another look, and he says, tonight we're having Flumo Madumo. And the kids were like, oh, really? Flumo Madumo? That sounds amazing. What's in it? He's like, well, a little bit of steak, some onions, maybe an egg, strawberries apparently, <laughs> oh, look, some rice. <laughs> we have everything we need right here to make Flumo Madumo. There wasn't really anything in there. It was all about your perspective when he opened that up. He could have either shut it and said, Well, I don't know. There's nothing here because people didn't show up with the food, and so now we just have nothing. 
But what he did is he said, hey kids, there's flumo medumo. And in that moment, these kids got a foretaste of the kingdom of God, right? That the attitude of the grandfather was like, look at what, look at what is here. Look at what the Lord has provided in this moment. We're having flumo medumo tonight. And so this is my encouragement to you. As Christians, the way that you proclaim the, God, proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God in your world, wherever you are, is make flumo medumo and offer it to those around you as a foretaste of the kingdom of God. Because you have a hope that is not based on circumstances or results, but is based on the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. Thank you for the work that you have done to unburden us from thinking we have to change the world because only you can do that. And you are doing it through your son Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. Please rise for our uh, final hymn.